and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name's Amanda Voidis, and I'm your host. We're doing housekeeping up top for the third episode in a row, so I can remind you that if you haven't already, please follow the podcast on Twitter, at Life TK Podcast, and on Instagram, at Life underscore TK. Subscribe to my newsletter by going to lifetk.com, scrolling all the way down to the bottom of the About page and clicking Updates. Search for me on Facebook and like that page while you're at it, please. Okay, that wasn't so bad. Here we go. I was so happy when I got an email from Dini Hartzog-Mislock with the subject line, Hi, from a fellow binder. Once again, the magical Lee Stein was connecting me to like-minded women. Deanie saw Life TK on the Binders Facebook group and actually volunteered to be interviewed and share her story of her 20s. The last three episodes of this year, by the way, are going to be from women who volunteered their time without me even having to ask through social media groups. And I've saved them for the special time of year when I feel like generosity and kindness are especially celebrated. Their support has meant a lot. Okay, Deanie. Deanie is a freelance copy director and essayist and has one of the most unique how did I get to be a writer stories I've heard. I'm not going to spoil it for you because you're going to hear her tell it firsthand. But just know that she worked and worked and made it to a dream position. Copy director at the one and only Vogue magazine. Yes, I asked her what it's like to meet Anna Winter in this episode. She left Vogue full-time to travel with her husband for his job. But she still freelances for Vogue as well as other clients, and she's an essay writer too. Check out her modern love column for the New York Times. She tells a really unique story about her grandmother that's so heart-wrenching, but also beautifully written. It's called A Boyfriend Too Good to Be True. Let's not waste any time. Here's Deanie. I graduated um, from the University of Alabama as a dancer and moved to New York, and everyone had told me that if you want to make money, that you have to do musical theater. My whole life, I had taken vocal lessons, and I had danced, um, and I had, you know, been doing super nerdy theater things, like, my whole life. And so um, it wasn't totally out of character for me, but I also didn't then and still don't particularly like musicals that much. (laughs) Um, But I did it anyway, and... Like, I remember going and auditioning for Hairspray, and I remember this girl who was just, like, a thousand times more dedicated to it than I was, <laughs> than I would ever be. And um, and so I did that. I did the, the dance auditions for about a year, and then I started waiting tables at this. Um, it, during that time, I started waiting tables, and then I – showed up at this audition for for Chicago and it was a national tour and um I show up in this like bright red leotard it's really low cut and my fishnets and my hair is slicked back and I'm wearing you know red lipstick and false eyelashes and <laughs> everyone in this room is stretching and singing and warming up and it's like 8 a.m and uh the guy who's running the audition comes in and says 
you know, thank you everyone, um, but we can only see Union today, and I'm going to take numbers 10, 35, 80, and 110. You know, everyone else, thank you so much, and have a great day. And I was furious, um, and that was the moment that I realized that I just didn't care enough that the girl, like the girl in my hairspray audition was going to end up being hugely successful because she was showing up to every audition and she was just like kicking ass all day. And she was also like elbowing her way to the front, you know, and she wanted it. And I realized that I just didn't have that kind of motivation and that not only, and this sounds sort of cheesy, but I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't really doing justice to myself. And I also was taking up a space for someone who really wanted it, you know, and I didn't. Around the time that I was 25, I I officially had accepted the fact that I was no longer going to pursue a career as a professional dancer um, and that I wanted to be a writer, And which is funny because I didn't have any experience writing other than just for myself. Like I sort of, I would just, I would write like on Word documents um, and I really sort of missed that time in my life because I didn't know anything about being a writer and I didn't know I mean this is good and bad but I didn't know really what good writing looked like and so I wrote with a lot of just free form abandon you know and that was really nice because then you know once you start once you know what good writing looks like and you start writing something you just want to beat yourself up because uh-huh. you know, every sentence that you put down, you're like, this is awful. Um, but anyway, I decided that I wanted to be a writer because as a dancer, as much as I love to perform, I loved to choreograph more than anything. And I, I love, and I still miss this um, process. I loved going into a, a empty studio all by myself you know, and sometimes you could go into the uh, actual auditorium to rehearse. And, you know, being on that big empty stage with this one spotlight and this idea that I could create something from nothing and then I got to give it to people and it elicited some sort of emotional response. And to me, that was the most powerful thing. I don't know. I just I love that process, and I realized mm-hmm. that I could translate that uh, from from chore- choreographing into writing. You know, with dance, you have to have a studio and music, and you have to know how to edit it, and you have to have dancers, and and a lot of that costs money, and it, it takes a lot of time. Um, and with writing, I love this accessibility that I could write. Um, I could write at work. I could write from my bed. I could write at a restaurant. I was an English minor in college, and so I had fallen in love with F. Scott Fitzgerald's work. I definitely had writers that I admired, and I and I knew what I loved about his work, but I don't know from like a linguistic point of view. I I just didn't know enough. Did you ever think about taking, um, you know, like all of your knowledge of dance and being like a dance critic? It's funny, I didn't because I didn't want to write about dance. Like when it came to dancing, I just wanted to create dance. 
but I didn't want because I thought about that. I thought like, oh, I should try to write for a dance magazine. But honestly, I thought the technical. <laughs> this is terrible, but I thought the technicalities of writing about dance was really boring. Um, yeah. To me, the most exciting thing about dance was again like going to this stage and and whipping up something and telling a story with you know, my body that people then could go, oh, I get it. Like, I see what you're trying to say. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I, I've i always really loved to write about people, um, mm-hmm. and I've always loved to write about experiences. And writing uh, in first person, sort of like an essay format, always came really naturally to me, which is what I, I do mostly now creatively. But, um yeah, I never intended to to set out to be like, oh, I want to be a nonfiction writer or a fiction. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what I was thinking, to be honest. <laughs> I just knew that I wanted to be a writer so badly that, I don't know, it was like a light bulb went off in my head one day where I was like, this is it. And I, so my brother is a law professor and he had creative endeavors when he was younger, but he sort of, when he got to college, he immediately went to law school afterwards, and now he has like a thousand degrees, and he loves being <laughs> a professor, and he would do it forever and ever, and he, like he would live like on the quad of college campus if he could, love it so much. Um, but he had a very direct path, you know, he sort of chose yeah. this, and then he, and he, you know, worked within it to do the things that he wanted to do in law, and I was just always so much more of a free spirit, and I don't know. I, I I got to this point, and I knew that I wanted to keep writing, and I knew that I wanted these jobs that all these other people had, you know, these writing jobs. And I was mm-hmm. like, this is right when Refinery29 had come out. So, uh, I don't know, maybe 2008. And so it was around that time, and I was sitting at the kitchen table with my brother at his house, and... I remember him being like, well, what do you want? And I was like, I I want to write. I want to be a writer. I want to be a professional writer, you know, and I was very passionate about it. And he was like, well, who do you want to write for? And I was like, I, I want to write for Refinery29. And I was like, that was my dream. And um, he was like, well, you know, then you should be reading refinery every day and you should be reaching out to the editor that you love and you should be pitching story and he was going on and on he was like you need to be doing this and you need to be doing that and doing that and I was like I don't have time like I'm so busy and I you know and I was getting really defensive and really upset and he was like then you just don't care enough and I was like yes I do and I was like really mad I was like I do care I do want it so bad and he was like no you don't because if you did then you would be doing everything in your power to make it happen like you wouldn't say I don't have time and I just started crying at the kitchen table in front of my brother because I was so upset because he was right. That actually was probably some of the best advice that anyone ever gave me. And it is so, so true that if you say, I do not have time or, you know, I don't know how to do it, then you just haven't peeked over that cliff yet because once you realize that you really, really, really want it, you will do anything to make it happen. And it doesn't, you know, whether it's getting up at 5 a.m. or going to bed at 2 a.m. or 
taking every single lunch break that you have to go work on your novel or your essay or doing all the research on every editor that you want to pitch to. And, and it also means that you just kind of have to put yourself out there and you have to be vulnerable and you can't be, you know, you can't take it personally. And I mean, gosh, I still get so many rejections from so many different editors of, of pieces that I'm writing. And I think it just, it took me a long time to, learn that that's just part of it. Have I ever told you that I once received a rejection letter from a magazine I never submitted a piece to? The rejection is so intense nowadays that you'll get preemptively rejected. You just got to get used to it if you want to be a writer. I just remember thinking, I don't care if I spend the rest of my life being rejected. If people, you know, tell me that I'm terrible, like I'm going to use it and I'm going to get better. So I contact this girl that I knew from from the restaurant industry and she was throwing a launch party for this really small magazine based out of Birmingham and I had this really twisted logic that they were a brand new magazine and I was a brand new writer and they were from the south and I was from the south and so naturally I should be writing for them and um, my friend finally introduced me after and I can't even imagine what she was thinking like was she was she embarrassed you know to be like here's a girl who's never written anything you should probably talk to her at this point like did you have a pitch or were you just like I'm gonna know and obviously they're gonna sign me something I mean I didn't even know enough to know that I needed a pitch. Like, I didn't know any, like, I didn't know people that worked at magazines. I did not, and I think I was really insecure about my background because by the time I was 25 and I had made up my mind that I wanted to be a writer, um, I was really insecure about the fact that all the other girls my age and guys, um, they'd all worked at magazines, like they'd had internships and they'd been working as people's assistants um, at Condé Nast and Time and Hearst. And I just didn't know anything about the industry. I didn't know how to get into it. I thought, okay, I'm 25 years old. And now in in hindsight, I'm like, oh, I should have just applied for some entry-level job at, you know, Allure or whatever and tried to work my way up. But I was so insecure that I – was like, how am I ever going to break in? Like, how am I ever going to get a job? Because all these other people who have the jobs that I want now, they've been doing it for four years already, five years. And so um, so I guess this just had this idea that I was just going to grassroots my way into being a writer. And um Again, I didn't even I didn't even have like a like a beat. I didn't think, oh, I want to be a beauty writer or a fashion writer. I just was like, nope, writer. So I was introduced to the people at this magazine, and they after four months of me harassing them um, politely, uh, they agreed to let me write about a fashion designer who was from Birmingham, Alabama, and she lived in New York, and you know, they gave me the word count, and I just ran with it. And I had never written an article. I didn't know anyone who worked in fashion, let alone a fashion designer. And I had this idea that fashion designers in Manhattan were all, you know, devil wears product, that they were all really intimidating and terrifying and, you know, stuck up. And 
So I was terrified to talk to this woman, uh, but she was incredibly kind and patient. And I, again, I can't imagine what she was thinking. So I did the interview and I cobbled together what I think is going to be a good story. And God bless the editor that had to work on it. Um, <laughs> but it was published and I was thrilled. I was, I think at that point, maybe I was 26 and I published my first thing in print and, um, so then this girl uh, who is, is still is a professional, she's a professional writer and had a pretty popular blog, um, saw that I had published this piece and said, do you want to write on my blog? I can't pay you. I still do this. But especially at this point, I just said yes to everything, whether it was free or not. I just, people were like, do you want to write this? I mean, someone could have come to me and been like, do you want to write? the copy on the back of this dog food bag for free. And I would have been like, of course I do. I mean, I would have <laughs> taken anything. And so. I love what Dini says about when you're first starting out saying yes to everything. I did this earlier in my twenties as well. And it led to a lot of really interesting freelance opportunities. I've edited books. I've consulted on books. I've done a lot of things with books, I guess. But I just wanted to add that once you're further along in your career, saying yes to everything can have the opposite effect. You can spread yourself too thin, and you shouldn't feel bad about saying no to opportunities that are going to drain you creatively. Which is why I'm so happy to announce that at the ripe old age of 29, I have just started saying no to projects. In fact, I said no thank you to two last week. I know I can almost feel you guys congratulating me through the podcast airwaves. Thank you. Thank you. Anyway, Deanie got another job writing for a beauty blog by taking that first opportunity, and then one day she got a call from that same fashion designer from her first story. Her company was looking for a public relations professional, and even though Deanie had never written a press release, she took the job. I guess I just saw this PR opportunity as um, a great way to write more. I mean, it was just sort of like, oh, great, cool, you're going to pay me and I'm going to write every day. Granted, it's not creative writing it's not editorial writing that that you know I really wanted to do but it's writing and if nothing else it'll teach me about sentences yeah <laughs> that'll be great and so um I took the job and it was awful and um I was so miserable just because it was a really small company and I was working I mean okay so this is probably 2008 I was working probably 60 hours a week, and I started out making um, $35,000 and just floundering, like drowning, because I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, the The CEO of the company was really demeaning and sort of just like this degrading oh, no. man who always like talked down to me. And, um, and I mean, I look back now and I'm like, well, I really didn't actually know what I was doing. So <laughs> there was a reason why he talked to me like I was four years old, but, um, I learned so much at this job, um, because I was the person who was greeting all the fashion market editors when they would come in. So I was going to Vogue and showing the collection, and I was meeting the girls from Glamour. At the time, I did not know that I was learning anything. At the time, I just thought, everything is terrible. I'm exhausted. I I just I was just drinking so much coffee 
<laughs> and um, I walked in one morning, and it was 8 a.m., and uh, it might have even been, like, before 8. Like it was very early, and the office was dark, and I go, and I have not even turned my computer on, and, like, a voice in the back of the office speaks to me, and it's the CEO, and I'm like, Ooh. And immediately, yeah, in the dark. You know, like listening to his music, like in the dark working, you know, because he probably didn't even leave. Like he probably, oh. he probably <laughs> went in there since the day before. Oh, and my God. He, I know. I mean, he was, it was that intense. Like it was just all, it really, it really was an eye-opening experience though, because I was working so hard in fashion PR and I would, I would think, we are not curing cancer. Like, I am not saving people's lives here. I get it. If I were, like, collectively, like, helping a large group of people and saving lives and improving the quality of someone else's life, I get it. But I am selling, you know, silk crepe de chine dresses. <laughs> and this is just not worth it to me. And so... I walk in that day, and he immediately starts, like, just hurling th- these to-dos at me. He's like, you got to call these people, and you got to do this. And I just, again, it was like a light bulb went off, and I was like, not today, never again. And then at noon, I went into the office, and I just quit. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, I I want to be a writer. This is not what I want to be doing with my day. I want to be writing professionally and creatively. And well, first he says, you know, being a writer is really hard. And I was, Uh, yeah, I was like, "Mm mm-hmm. And I'm just biting my tongue because I really am trying not to burn any bridges here. You know, like I'm just trying to quit gracefully and get on with my life. And he's like, you know, you can't just go work at some newspaper in Charlotte and call yourself a writer. And I was like, so angry. One, you can. You totally (laughs) can. The Charlotte Observer has five Pulitzers under its belt, by the way, for the guy who told Deanie this. And I was just so angry. And that just like fueled my fire even more. I was like, that's it. I left. I quit. Um, I tried to freelance for a little bit for about a month because I had a, enough money in my account to where I could live. I could like pay my rent for a month and that was it. Yeah. And I got down to the point where I had a dollar and 75 cents in my checking account. And I obviously didn't want to ask my parents for money um, because at this point I'm like 27 and I am just, like so embarrassed. I was too proud to go back to waiting tables because I, I had in my mind, I had left that, behind me and so at the time going back to that former life was really digressing for me and I went um, back to Mississippi and I was like I guess I'll just figure it out I went and I like lived with my parents and I was home for a week and I was so depressed and I was like this is the worst the worst thing that has ever happened to me like my life is over I mean I had a boyfriend at the time like I like left my boyfriend in New York and was like I'm gonna go home and live with my parents I'm 27 for any 27 year old who might listen to this 27 is not old the first time I had I was how old was I at this point I was like 23 Mm -hmm. and our editor-in-chief left and I was really upset 
um, because I wanted to keep working with him, and I really, I liked this, I liked that job a lot. And so I was upset, and he was like, I remember him saying to me, you could do this for like 10 or 15 more years and just start over doing whatever you want, and you would still be young enough to do that. And I remember thinking, no way, I'm so old, I'm 23. It's so um, funny, right? It's so true, though, but when you're like in the weeds like that, you can't. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't it know. felt, it, it just felt like, oh, well, now I'm back home and, you know, this is just not the way that I had imagined my life um, rolling out. But I was only home for two weeks because I got a job at Bloomingdale's.com uh, as a fashion copywriter because um, I had done copywriting at my job as um, in fashion PR. And again, I like no one told me how to be a copywriter. I've never taken a class on it. I just wrote things about clothes. I again somehow managed to convince the people at bloomingdoves.com that I could do this professionally, um, you know, like as my career. And so I worked at Bloomingdale's for two years. Um and it was a it was a great experience in that it taught me how to write professionally every day you know, sitting at a computer and just, like, writing for 10 hours. Yeah. Um, and then towards the end, I just was, I was, like, done. I realized that there was very little creativity because you were just shelling out copy all day long. And I worked with a girl who had previously worked at Condé Nast, and she was like, send me your resume. Um, I'm going to pass it along to my old Allure coworker who is now at Bon Appetit. I was like, cool, great. Um, an interview, I get the job at Bon Appetit. I loved working at Bon Appetit. Um, I came in in 2011 when they hired Adam Rappaport to be oh, the editor-in-chief. Nice. So I came on with this sort of whole new influx of people. Um, and it was really fun. It, everything about it was great. I, I did sometimes work really long hours, um, but we had a great time, and I worked with amazing people, and I had the most amazing bosses, and um, and then Vogue just came up. It it um, like I had met the girl that had the job through sort of like a Condé Nast copywriter meetup, <laughs> and it was oh, all these different copywriters, <laughs> and it was like the nerdiest thing ever. Um, and we met, this is back when um, Condé was in Four Times Square, and we uh-huh. met up at the bar right next to Condé, and um, I only meet her very briefly, but we sort of keep in touch, and a few months later, she emails me and is like, hey, I'm going to Australia for three months because my husband is a fashion photographer, and I'm going to go join him, um, but I'd like to give them some names when I resign and I wanted to put your name in the hat. Are you interested? And the weird thing is I was so happy at Bon Appetit that I actually hesitated. Like, you know, because I just was like, and I was intimidated. I was like, oh, what if I don't like working at Vogue? But then I was like, you're a dummy. Of course put my name in the hat. Just because you, yeah. just because you put my name in the hat doesn't mean, you know, it, I'm like, what? who do I think I am? You know, like, of course, like give them my name. And uh, she did, and then I had um, 
five interviews over the course of three months. And, oh my gosh. and then I, yeah, and then I got the job. So I was the copy director at Vogue um, for two and a half years, and I still freelance with them, which is awesome. Can I ask you what it was like to work at Vogue? Yeah, um, it was amazing. Um, yeah. I was on the, mm-hmm. you know, the business um, side of magazine. So yeah. I worked on, um, in a studio that is no longer, because, you know, Condé Nast has now, done that thing that so many other publishing houses have done and combined to have like a creative agency. Yeah. So, you know, the whole, my whole creative team um, was scrapped and, you know, uh, several of those people work at the creative agency at Condé now and some of them um, have gone on to do other things. But um, it was amazing. I worked with just some of the most incredible, hardworking people, um, and the thing that was really fun about working somewhere like Vogue is that you actually get to execute really cool ideas because you get to work with brands that have the budget to do it. And, yeah. you know, you have so many, um, like, thought leaders and big thinkers. It was nothing like I thought it was going to be. Everybody was so incredibly nice. And don't get me wrong. I mean, it was high, pre- it was high pressure. Um, yeah. But it was the first place that I ever worked where the standards were so high that it, I don't know. I mean, that sounds like a really scary thing, but it was actually really gratifying. Um, You know, you don't take no for an answer and messing up is not an option. And if you don't know something, then go ask someone so you can make it good. You know, it just was um, this culture of keep your head up, stay positive, work hard, and, like, let's be proud of the work we do. I mean, and, you know, how amazing this is that we get to support these incredible editors and photographers and stylists and, you know, to be a part of such a beautiful magazine. Um, Yeah. Did you meet Anna Winter? I know people are going to be screaming. You know, everyone always – yeah, everyone always asks that. Um, The thing is – you don't really meet Anna. <laughs> I love that. Um, the answer so yeah, much. she sort of, she sort of um, is there, and you sort of exist around her, um, especially in my department because I wasn't, yeah. you know, on the editorial team. But um, <laughs> I did um, have an experience with her where um, it was my second week. I was in the elevator bank on the twelfth floor, and I had pressed the elevator to go down, and I'm sort of. I have my back turned and sort of, you know, looking around and not really paying attention. And I hear the ding of the elevator. So I turn around and Anna is standing right in front of the elevator. And so (laughs) this is so stupid, but there's this dumb rumor that goes around, or it did at least when I went to Condé, that you're never supposed to get in the elevator with Anna. I have no idea where that came from. I don't know if there's truth to it or not. Um, So the second week and I see Anna but I'm the one who pressed the button (laughs) so I'm like if I don't get on the elevator then it's gonna look so stupid so then I see that there's another girl in um in the elevator so I get on the elevator on the 12th floor and it goes down it stops at seven and the other girl gets off to go to Lucky and I'm like oh man okay so it's just me and Anna and the whole time I'm like just say something. Just say, like, hey, Anna, I saw you speak last week, and it was really great. I really enjoyed it. Or, hey, Anna, I'm new here. I'm really excited to be working here. 
you know, thanks for all you do or whatever, whatever you say. I'm like, I'm just a human. She's just a human. I should just introduce myself. And um, so I'm standing there and I'm thinking, and every time I'm like, just say something. I'm like, no, don't say anything. You're an idiot. And so I'm having this war in my head for seven floors down. And we get to the bottom and I never say anything. And I'm like (laughs) sweating at this point. And I think, okay, you know what? Just stay here. When the doors open, just let her get out first. So the elevator stops and she doesn't move. And I'm like, what? She wants me to get out of the elevator first. And so I go to get out of the elevator. And at the same time that I had started to move, I guess she had started to move. And so then I did this sort of weird, like, squeezing Anna out of the elevator (laughs) and she goes on probably thinking that I'm an idiot and that you know whatever on with her day I since got to be in her presence and hear her speak multiple times and the thing is she's so lovely and she's funny and she um is just a really intriguing woman so yeah it, it was cool I I did ask her a question once in um in a meeting and she answered and so that's the extent that we ever spoke to each other <laughs> uh, but yeah but overall it was it was awesome I feel so fortunate to have had that experience and to have worked with the people that I did yeah I mean that's just such a great story you went from you know being a dancer to working at like the I mean arguably there's not you can't do better than Vogue Vogue and the New Yorker to me are like yeah yeah it's sort of like now that I'm a freelancer um yeah I don't know I don't know what I would do after this you know I don't know if I would go back into publishing or if I would go work at a brand because right now I get to work with brands like big brands and small brands and also you know a lot of different magazine titles which is like my dream but yeah in between those like that entire story of of all the sort of corporate jobs that I had, um, I did start writing creatively and, um, you know, have been able to publish a few things um, that I'm really proud of. And I'm still very much on this journey of um, writing essays and publishing them. And um, in 2014, well, in 2015, I published a piece in the Modern Love column um, of the New York Times. And so that probably to date is like the thing that I am most proud of because it was a story that I've been trying to write for six years. And I finally um, I finally just did it. But I, I like to mention that because I hate for people to have this idea that, you know, like, oh, I have this day job so I can't be a creative writer or whatever it is and and yeah and you absolutely can be I mean I was I was you know I'm obviously a huge Liz Gilbert fan um and read Big Magic and um you know was reading like she she had written several she published novels you know and was still keeping her day job and I think a lot of people have this misperception that they can't go write their great American novel until they can make money as a novelist, which I think is completely like, you know, batshit. Um, yeah. So when I, when I published this, this piece in modern love, um, that came out in April of 2015 and I was just like over the moon. I 
couldn't believe that they accepted my submission. And um, it was this essay that I had been trying to write for probably six years. Um, and it was about my grandmother and Alzheimer's. And um, I just absolutely adored my grandmother. And so this story was really, really, really special and important to me. And I had put it off and I had tried to write it and I would start drafts and I wouldn't finish them. And then finally in December of 2014, um, when I was working at Vogue, I was just was like, fuck it. I'm, I'm just, I'm so sick of carrying the story around and it, I'm just going to do it. And thankfully, um, in the publishing industry, (laughs) things get really slow in December, especially right before Christmas. And so I took advantage of that time to just start, um, writing that essay. Sometimes it takes a lot longer to write something when you have a full-time job. Um, but I would get in in the morning at, at like 8.30 or 9, and I would you know check my work emails, and I would address whatever things I needed to address. And then I would pull up a Word document, and I would just keep it there all day. I minimized, mm-hmm. and I would do my work. And if I had five minutes or ten minutes or on my lunch break, I would write something. And then, you know, at night I would – add to it or um, on the weekends or whatever it was. And so um, I started writing this piece in December and um, sent it off, I guess in January or February, maybe I sent it off in February. I I did a lot of rounds of edits. I mean, I harassed every writer friend that I knew at every magazine and begged them to read it and to give me their feedback. And um, I have so many amazing friends that did that. And so I submitted in February, and it was published in April. And um, the day that it was published online, I got an email from a literary agent, and she's like, I just saw your modern love piece, and I'd love to talk to you about representation. And so I'm thinking, like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is everything I've ever wanted. And I was so excited, and I was like, I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Like, maybe she has an idea for how to turn this piece into, you know, something bigger. Um, And we get on the phone, and she's like, I think that you should write fiction. And I was like, well, I don't really write fiction. Like, I don't – I write nonfiction, and I I usually – you know, like what you read. (laughs) Like, that's what I write. And she was really pushing me, and she was like, I know, but, you know, you can just write a real story, and um, then you just change some facts, and you change some names. And I was like, yeah, that don't, I don't really feel good about that. And um, it really did mess me up because I thought, oh, my God, this is my chance. Like, this is my opportunity. I have this momentum from publishing this piece. And um, and so I consulted a lot of people um, and some other literary agents, and, you know, they're their response was, you know, writing fiction is hard enough for people who live and breathe fiction. And, you know, a good agent should be catering to your strengths. Like she should be looking at what you do best and and she should be supporting, you know, your vision of what you want to create. And um, so that was, yeah, that was kind of the end of that. But that's also a great argument for keeping a day job is like if you – if you yeah. hadn't been working full time and someone presented you with that opportunity, you might have just been like, Well, if I sell this book, it'll be yeah. money and then like done something that you didn't really want to do. Yeah. And I agree. Who knows? It could have been terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like also an agent 
from what I've heard, like when you are looking for an agent or looking for representation, like I think the best agents sort of look at also what you want to write in the future. Thank you. I know that I really struggled with it for a long time, and I've yeah. even thought about like reaching out to her again. And um, and now I, like I said, I I would love to write fiction at some point, but um, my strength is really is really nonfiction and essay writing, and I think. I don't know. I think I just have more work to do there. I have a lot more to learn, I think, and I have more to write um, before I try to embark on some, like, totally yeah. new genre. Like, there's there's already enough for me to do in the essay realm, you know? Like, there's just so – there's still so much um, that I have to learn, you know, as it is. So, yeah, I think it I think it worked out. So what would, what would you say were, like, either the biggest challenge or the biggest lesson you learned in your 20s? Oh, God, so many. Um, um, I think it's important to be uncomfortable. And, yeah. I mean, I still think that now in my 30s. But I remember when I was in my 20s, I remember thinking about how when you're a kid, um you're really uncomfortable all the time because you're mm -hmm. constantly learning new things and you're constantly having to meet new people and you're constantly doing just doing things that you've never done before or that maybe you don't want to do. And I think that that's actually a really good skill because think of how resilient children are. Like they're just constantly rebounding from so many things. And even though they might feel their feelings more than we do as adults, I just think it's such a blessing to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation to see what happens, because I think that it makes you braver and it makes you realize that the things you're afraid of aren't actually that scary um, when you have to live in them for a little bit. You know, my first inclination when I sit down to write something is, you know, I put a sentence down and I immediately am like, oh my God, this is awful. No one's going to want to read this. This is so stupid. Where am I going with this? I give up, you know, it's like yeah. you immediately fall into this awful little rabbit hole. And I think for me getting past that first, like just self-deprecating um, idea of whatever I'm writing is so stupid and no one's going to care. No one's going to want to read this. And yeah. who do I think I am? And I think in the past when I was younger, um, I let that stand in my way. I love that Dini said she sometimes thought, who do you think you are? Or who do I think I am? I still find myself falling into that trap all the time, saying that to myself. But now when I do, I'm going to remember 25-year-old Dini emailing that first editor for a story without even so much as a pitch and just do whatever it is I'm scared of doing anyway. There's there's like a real beauty in being naive, obviously, per, per my story. And... <laughs> I think that the goal is to remember that it doesn't matter how long it takes, you know, like maybe right. if you're in a circumstance that is really has the odds stacked against you, like then just keep doing it. Like all you can do is keep doing it and stopping, you know, or, or being discouraged and sort of throwing your hands up in the air and be like, forget about it. Well, like then you're never going to get anywhere, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's sort of like even if you have to crawl to your goal, you know, you're still moving and making progress. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my final piece of advice. It was great. I loved it. Yeah, I totally <laughs> agree. 
Awesome. You just keep going awesome. until you die. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, that's the rush. Like, you're just going to yeah. literally, if that's the thing you want to do, then, like, do it until you have no more breath in you, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, thank you so, so much. We really appreciate it. Um, yeah, thank I you. I'm so honored. Stories. No, I'm honored. This has been amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much again to Deanie for her time and insights. I also wanted to mention that she has a personal blog called Bourbon and Gloss. Yes, two of my favorite things. You should check it out. And remember when she said her goal was to write for Refinery29? Well, she did. She achieved it. Check out her Refinery29 pieces. My fave is called Crowdsourcing My Way to Motherhood. Tell me, should I have a kid? Because it is so me. Remember to be okay with being uncomfortable and tell me what upbeat essay collections Deanie and I should be reading at amanda at lifetk.com. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time.